cotton. It's a thing that we all know and we all touch probably every single day. But we don't really know where it comes from. That uh, traceability is something that can be very dark and murky in the world of cotton with a lot of uh, forced and child labor that you never really know and a lot of the manufacturers never really know before it hits store shelves. But uh, here today with Blake Olves, who is with Sewn West, who is a, a new brand that bringing new uh, radical transparency and sustainability to the world of cotton and specifically t-shirts. So Blake, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, uh, Sewn West, this is a, is a relatively new brand, but uh, not new for you in the world of, of uh, t-shirts and cotton and just fashion production in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've, I've been in this business now for about... 15 years working ever since I was about 16 years old, but I've been surrounded by the textile and fashion industry ever since I was a young kid through my mother, who was also in the fashion business. It often seems to go in, in family trees. That's uh, There's a lot of folks that I know that the, are in the garment trade uh, familially. Oh, was your uh, your family also in t-shirts and cotton production and things like that? No, my, my mom was more on the fashion retail side. So she was a VP general merchandise manager for about 150 store chain out here in Southern California. And uh, I just, you know, ever since I was a kid, I'd be looking at clothes with her. I'd be attending meetings, you know, because she was a full-time working mom, you know, she, mm-hmm. she had just had to drag me along to all these places, you know, we go look at competitor stores. I'd be running through rounders, driving her crazy, you know, trying mm-hmm. to hide from her. But, uh, yeah, no, it, it's, it's definitely something that you grow into, um, especially being around it in the business. You know, I think I would say I was, uh, brought on as a garmento early on. Yeah. It's sort of the same here. My mom was a buyer for a, a regional department store chain in Texas. And, yeah, just sort of seeing, like, going shopping with her and also hiding in the rounders. <laughs> Something that I think uh, all of us fashion kids uh, can identify with. Um, so getting into it as a, as a Garmento, like, uh, what other work have you done before coming on to Sewn West? So I've worked in a wide variety of things. I've done a lot of private label manufacturing for a lot of big retailers. Everyone from Ross, TJ Maxx, um, Tilly's, Nordstrom, Century 21, Myers Group. Uh, targets, the Costco's of the world. And a lot of that was either through their various uh, private labels, or um, I'd also do a lot of licensing work and prints with Disney, Hot Topic, Marvel Comics. So a lot of those crazy, like all over Lilo and Stitch dresses and everything, or Sailor Moon skirts with big bow ties. Uh, I I did a wide range of stuff in everything from knitting, dyeing, cutting, sewing, all the way to the the completion delivery of the product. Uh, so big, big production, like yeah. uh, in the hundreds of thousands of units, I imagine, on some of these things. Lots, lots of units, yeah. Oh, and uh, how does Stone West, like, uh, how would you describe that in comparison to doing some of the previous work that, that is at a much different scale, I would imagine? Yeah, um, I, would, I would describe Stone West as my vision of a no-compromise product. Um, number one, because everything is direct to consumer. And so from a price point perspective, it's, it's more cost effective to deliver it to a consumer, as you can see with all e-commerce everywhere, as opposed to having to go through all these various chains in the pipeline where everyone's you know, taking some sort of profit margin on the product, mm-hmm. right? Whether you're buying the fabric or you're a retailer and you're, you have your own product margin, um, 
shipping direct to consumers allows us to offer a better quality product at a, at a price that's beneficial to that. So um, I would say from a no compromise standpoint, it's everything that I wasn't able to do in private label manufacturing because it was, you know, very cost conscious. You know, a lot of these retailers said, hey, we, we need to be at a certain pr price for our margin. Otherwise, we can't do it. And so, well, you start compromising on things, right? So you compromise on the cotton quality. You compromise on the, the sewing stitches that are going to be used, uh, maybe the fabric or material consumption or even the trims that may go into it and you know maybe less ties less zippers uh you're just kind of slowly chipping away at, at what it could be in order to make it happen and you, you you end up compromising all these different places and with sun west we're able to say okay if we had no limit on what we could produce if we could use the best cotton the best sewing you know the best dyeing techniques what would that look like and that's so less, essentially. Yeah, sort of the, the fully optioned Cadillac of, of t-shirts <laughs> yeah, is the, exactly. the division here. Right, right. Yeah, as I think a lot of people don't realize like when uh, bigger manufacturers or, or bigger um, retailers get into manufacturing, they like go to a product development team and they say like, okay, show us what you got. And they bring out like a $60 G and they say, okay, we need that to be $40. And they exactly. just basically take a chisel <laughs> to it. Until it gets down to forty dollars, and they go, "Great, let's put it on the shelves." Exactly. Um, exactly. So this is the the unblemished sort of uh, your vision being uh, most maintained. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I, I think that's really fun. You know, it's like it, you really get to experiment with a lot of cool things, and and that benefit of also having you know offering a, a quality product at such a good price point, you're also able to pay suppliers better. Because now, you know, you're not being raced to the bottom, which trickles down, you know. Right. And you can control the, uh, the money coming in, the money going out, rather than having all those uh, intermediaries uh, hitting away at the margin. Exactly. Oh, a, a couple of things in a lot of the materials uh, I've seen over for Sewn West are uh, emphasize sustainability and transparency, which, you know, to, to be fair, is a thing that you hear a lot these days. And... Uh, so I, I wanted to ask a bit, like, what do those terms mean to you? And uh, I guess we can take them one by one. Sustainability, what does that mean to you? And uh, how does that, uh, how do you think Sewn West is I don't know, fulfilling that, that term? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think the state of greenwashing in, in all retail has now been just so mind-numbingly chanted from every, every you know, person who produces you know whatever it's clothing or, or you know farming or, or whatever that it's almost like you just like want to puke you know because it's just everyone saying it what, what does it really mean right and so from a sustainability standpoint i would say and, and this is why i'm so happy to be here is because i really kind of want to explain that it really starts all the all the way from the beginning Right. And so if you were to work with these farmers and I've personally worked with a lot of farmers from the cotton farms that we uh, buy a lot of our yarn from and you know, raw material from, you know, for example, what happens after, you know, these cotton plants go into a gin, right? Well, these rolling gins will then separate the cotton seeds from the cotton fiber plant. And then you have leftover cotton seeds because all the cotton fiber is being shipped off to be spun into yarn. Um, that cotton seed is then mashed down into cottonseed oil. And then that cottonseed oil is then shipped off to be used in other products elsewhere. And then that mash that's left over is being used for livestock to refeed them, 
And so you kind of have to look at it at a circular kind of fashion, you know, at every stage. So for example, our cutting and sewing facility that we work out of, we take all the scraps that are left over from cutting out, you know, our fronts, our backs, our sleeves, et cetera. And those scraps are then being stuffed into these uh, dog beds that we donate around downtown Los Angeles. So, you know, dogs could have, you know, homeless dogs in particular have a place to sleep with their, you know, their counterpart humans. So you really kind of have to think about it from a, from a whole full cycle of from start to finish. And really, I think what's so important is number one, understanding your suppliers and how they work and what they're doing. And I think that is so great about being in Los Angeles is because we are able to have these conversations and, you know, it's all done here and you're not really left knowing, um, you know, what, what's happening with certain things or how things are being done. Mm-hmm. Those are the like use every part of the Buffalo type of ideology and minimize waste wherever it's possible. Exactly. Exactly. In terms of just like raw materials usage, um, a, a way that uh, it sort of all boils down to is like how many liters or gallons of water does it take to produce like such and such a garment or a mm. cheeseburger or a flight across the U.S.? Like, right. Do you have any, um, I guess, hard metrics on what it, uh, how, what resources it takes to produce a sewn West shirt versus something that's more conventionally made? You know, it's really, really hard to pinpoint, right? Because there's so many aspects that go into the supply chain right and yeah i would love to sit down with someone scientifically that could help us analyze every step of that because it, you really need to partner with everyone in the supply chain right so that's talking with the farmer hey how many liters or gallons of of water are you using to fulfill your crop this year because there was a drought or there wasn't a drought or maybe you know something happened or whatever and then it's also working with the dye house which is probably going to be your most water consumption um, mm-hmm. i would say i mean if you're working with a dye house in Los Angeles, you know, they're already held to a really strict standard from the, from the County. Uh, they're going to, they're monitoring that water usage all the time and how it's being, you know, disposed of and everything like that. Um, but most, most dye facilities, I would say within the LA area, try to be as environmentally conscious as they possibly can mm-hmm. with their waste and how it's reused and everything like that, because you have, you have to be, you know, yeah, and it's the most regulated state, <laughs> one of the most regulated yeah, countries. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, uh, everything is done in California, correct? Like e- everything, everything. The only thing that, that isn't done is the actual yarn spinning, um, that gets sent over, you know, there's a couple different places, but you know, for example, there's one place in Georgia that does yarn spinning. There's no yarn spinners in, in California, unfortunately, but it is grown and harvested here. It's shipped out to be yarn spun and then it's brought back and then everything is done here in los angeles well, even keeping it like mostly there and mostly in one country is impressive this, this is the yeah. thing is i'm sure you know much better than i do that when you get to uh larger scales of production you could have a garment being sent to like six different countries and, and it's still cheaper and it's still cheaper it's that's what's mind-blowing to me you know it's like you think about how many tankers and containers are moving across that water you know every day and it's just I think that just shows the disparity in wages across the world. Yeah, that's the benefit is in deregulation and in disparity in wages that it's cheaper to uh, dispose of the you know detritus of the process as well as uh, you know the the people that are there to make it. Um, 
Oh, it, moving into transparency, I guess we, we touched on this a little bit already with uh, everything being done in California. But like, what does transparency mean to you? That's another one of those words that is often thrown around and seldom defined. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I think, and it's something that we're going to be continually working on at the Sun West Project. I, I know that you know things are slowly starting to pick up for us as far as you know, launching at the beginning of this year. But really, the transparency is really sh- being open. Having, having conversations like we are right now, explaining our process, why are we doing certain things in certain ways and working with certain people and bringing you inside. You know, if you go on our website right now, you can see some clips of different facilities that we're working at, at but eventually that's going to divulge into like actual content on, you know, what is this knitting facility all about? Who are the people that work here? It's interviewing the knitter. It's sitting down with the cotton farmers, hearing their story about how their daily lives look in the grand scheme of things of the whole supply chain, you know, and I think traceability, which, you know, we'll dive into a little bit later and cotton is a whole other thing. But I think from a people standpoint, it's really bringing you into our partners and who we work with sharing their stories, because it's like you said, you know, it's, it's our moms, it's our grandmothers who are sewing a lot of these garments. I, I mean, I have so many friends that I said, Oh yeah, my mom used to work in a sewing facility, you know, and it's, it, these are, these are people that we know, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, would you mind walking us through the different uh, partners and vendors that you use to, I guess, go from, uh, from cotton farm to finished garment? Yeah. So the standard supply chain is, you know, you start with a cotton farm, it goes to a yarn spinner. And then that yarn spinner takes those yarn cones and ships it to a knitter. That knitter will then knit that down into what's called gray goods, which is untreated or unfinished goods. And those gray goods are then going to go to a dye facility. And that dye facility is going to bleach, scour, clean, dye whatever color that you need. And then depending if there's any additional fabric treatments or whatever, say antimicrobial treatments or softeners or any other stuff like that, um, that may be applied there or in another facility. And then it goes to a cutting facility where things are cut and then it goes to a sewing facility where things are sewn. And then it finally goes to distribution where it goes to you guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you mind sharing the specific partners along the way for those? Yeah. I mean, it's no one you would really know. Uh, I I could give you the names, but it's Mm -hmm. all standard textile people, you know, I mean like, gosh, who's a a, a big dye house that we've worked with. Uh, Swiss Tex is a, a big dye house in LA, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they do a lot of work for Adidas and, you know, other athletic bird brands, um, our knitting facility. Um, he actually inherited that place from the previous owner who was a Korean owner and his name's Jose, for example. And Jose immigrated over from Mexico early on in his life and spent 15 years working at that facility and sweeping the floors and learning the knitting machine setups and the different gauges and whatnot. And eventually when it came time for the owner to leave, he wanted to sell the business. And Jose said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take a loan and I'm going to do this. And I think that's a very kind of grassroots story of someone who started from almost nothing, you know, was, you know, got a troubled past trying to make it in LA to now owning a facility where he supplies jobs, supplies work for people, and is able to provide value in, in the textile chain. Mm-hmm. So uh, you mentioned before we got on um, about driving around between all these different places. So everything is in a relatively small area. 
yeah. that you can view all these places and meet the people and see the uh, the work that's being done? I would say every every place, every facility is probably within 20 to 30 minutes at most. I mean, you have to factor in Los Angeles traffic, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I, I know too well, but... <laughs> yeah. Uh, most of this stuff is like out in the, the the east side, like in like the Vernon areas, where I remember most of the production happening. Vernon's a big uh, working area. Uh, you have commerce, you have uh, city of industry, which is a little bit further east. You have, you know, El Monte. It just really depends, you know. And it, there, there's a, like I said, there's a, quite a handful of people. So maybe one die house or one knitting facility may be completely slammed or, or full of work for the next four weeks. And so you kind of have to use another knitting facility that's in a different part of town or whatever in order to get the product out. Uh, what is the, the scene like out there? Is I haven't had an update from like what uh, the LA production scene has been like in, in uh, I guess, since the start of the pandemic. Mm. Um, and remember it just sort of slowly ramping down as a lot of the like LA premium gene makers mm. uh, started to, um, I lose steam. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the the sense right now? Is like uh, dye houses and you know sewing facilities and uh, finishing and like wash houses and places like that. I've only heard of them closing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, could you I guess provide some update there on what it's like to produce in LA and if a lot of the more technologically advanced stuff is still possible? Mm-hmm. I yeah, I have to kind of take it a little bit further back. I think that. The textile industry in Los Angeles in general has been on a slow decline ever since the mm-hmm. 1980s and 1990s. As a lot of things started moving overseas to China, Vietnam, and Bangladesh or other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what was once maybe hundreds of knitters is probably now down to about 20 knitters in Los Angeles. And I think with the advent of e-commerce, um, early 2000s, late 2000s, really started that shift of moving a lot of things to the digital realm, and, re- and retailers su- suffered a lot, you know. And uh, I think the industry saw a shock there for sure in that migration to e-commerce. I think you probably heard of the retail apocalypse, where a lot of retailers were, mm-hmm. you know, filing bankruptcy and everything like that. And so, obviously, you know, that also affects the supply chain. And so, people were having a hard time finding work. And then the pandemic kind of was just another nail in that coffin, in my opinion. Um, but I, I think there was a lot of benefit too to all this, right? And so the pandemic happened, a lot of people were able to shift and help with a lot of mask production. Uh, personally, I was working on a couple of mask contracts for the U.S. Air Force and supplying a lot of masks to the different Air Force bases throughout the United States and the world. Um, and that, that allowed us to still work during this whole pandemic. Um, but I think also it, it, it's kind of like a, it, it's a two-way street, right? So you see a lot of these retailers going out of business in that, that age of cheap fast, fast fashion, like the Zara's or the H&M's of the world have kind of started being phased out. I mean, even Forever 21 filed bankruptcy. But now you see these newer, smaller brands that are starting to pop up in e-commerce and they're able to be more lean they're able to be more agile and they're able to pay more for product with their vendors and still supply it at a competitive price online to consumers and provide a better quality product and i think overall to the supply chain maybe that was more of a squeeze uh to the industry and it forced a lot of people to be more efficient in the technology that they were using but overall i think actually it allows for a lot of smaller businesses to come into the playing field which I think is a huge bonus, a huge plus. 
And I also think that people get to work on better quality products, right? There's th th that compromising that has just bottomed out, like I was explaining earlier, has now been replaced with good quality materials, good quality sewing. Maybe it's a smaller volume, but you're you're paying more, you know, for these sewers or or for these cutters or these dye houses. And, and it, I think it's, I think we're now on the up upswing of that. I guess. Mm. Well, that's good to hear. Is again, when you move to smaller volumes, like it becomes more cost effective to do it domestically at home because then you know someone like yourself can drive between all these different uh, facilities and have more control over what's being made rather than you know having to DHL things overnight like six times a week yeah. from Hong Kong. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's nice to hear, um, especially in terms of uh, the need for domestic production with with masks. Is like that was another thing that we did here that uh, I work out of a small sewing factory here that uh, makes like backpacks and wallets and stuff. Mm -hmm. And during the pandemic, I was like, well, I guess we better start making masks and they could make them, you know, two days later after they had a pattern. Right. Um, and they ended up making like 40,000 that we donated about 10,000 to local you know, hospitals and Native American reservations and things like that. But uh, it was about six weeks before the standard supply chain could catch up. and. You know, it it just makes sense to have these abilities domestically, like if not only to like feel good and know that things are being made in the correct way, but like it's uh, a matter of health and safety as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it was a tire shock to the to the world when we realized we didn't have any supply or any resources to kind of counteract the the challenges that we were facing. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it becomes a lot more expensive when you can't get that over here, yeah. and the the knock on effects that uh, you can't really put a price tag on when you're running production and like running a balance sheet, but mm -hmm. you know that everyone as a collective society has to pay because of those corners were cut. Right. We live in a fast-paced world. Sometimes you just need to slow down and stop. Heddles Plus, the new membership program of exclusive content, giveaways, discounts, and a community chat forum. Try a month free with the code extra blowout. But moving into uh, traceability, which I guess we we touched on or uh, right at the beginning, uh, uh, cotton traceability I think is something that isn't super familiar with most consumers because it's just like oh cotton, the fabric of our lives. It's coming from like some guy driving a harvester in Tennessee. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when uh, the reality of it could not be any more murky that just like the more I learn about where cotton comes from, the, the more horrifying it is. And yeah, <laughs> uh, I wondered if you could just uh, give a little bit of background on what standard cotton production is like and the global cotton market and how uh, what Sewn West is doing is different. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I think the information that's out there right now on cotton is so sporadic and it's unfortunately that there's, there's no um, standard that's being held um, with the exception of Supima, which I'll, I'll tackle a little bit later. But in the global supply, a lot of people are told, you know, Egyptian cotton is the best cotton in the world, right? You hear it mm -hmm. all the time, you know, and it's marketed that way. But unfortunately, there's no standards or there's no process, there's no officiation that certifies that uh, it, that Egyptian cotton is the best, or why it's the best, 
or even if it's true Egyptian cotton, you know, and um, I think that's one of the, the biggest problems of the cotton industry. And it's very similar to other industries like, uh, say, the coffee industry, right? You hear about a lot of these coffee farmers that are supplying good coffee and it's like, oh, single origin coffee from Guatemala or, or Nicaragua. But, you know, but they don't tell you the beans are, are cut in half with the other cheaper beans, right? And it's the same thing with mm-hmm. co- the cotton industry. You, 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 it could be Pima cotton, but it could be cut with other cottons as well. And that's really unfortunate, you know, but, you know, people trying to save money across the planet. Uh, I would say from a global supply, the United States is probably one of the biggest cotton suppliers, um, second to China. And then you have India, Pakistan, um, parts of Australia um, that also supply cotton. And uh, there's varying grades of different cotton. And so it really comes down to the two different breeds. Um, you know, you have, well, there's multitudes of breeds, but the two that are being used in textiles are what's a standard upland cotton. And then you have the ELS cotton, which is extra long staple cotton. And actually you guys, Heddles have a really good article that covers a lot of the different cottons in the world too. Um, the gene nerds care about cotton staple length. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. And so and a lot of listeners probably already know that the extra long staple cottons are anywhere from 1.3 to 1.5 times longer in fiber length than your standard upland cotton that may come out of North Carolina, Tennessee, um, stuff like that, et cetera. Uh, but uh, the Pima cottons of the world are really interesting. And that originated, um, I believe, out in Egypt and then found its way to the West Sea Island area where it was doing really well. And Supima, which is the cotton that we use, and uh, the organization is based out of Arizona, was actually a project started in the early 1900s. And um, the US Department of Agriculture wanted to partner up with local farmers to breed a better quality cotton product. And it was a testing ground for them. And they did it on Pima Indian lands. And to say thanks to those Pima Indians, they actually named it Pima Cotton after those Indians and used, used that land there. And then that Pima cotton ended up going to other places around the world, like Peru, and you, know, you hear like Peruvian cotton, Australia is another place, you know, and whatnot, and people try to market it as something superior, right? And so that being said, Supima is probably the or- only nonprofit organization, and they're great, that really works with farmers and tries to promote the Supima brand. And the way that they do this is through their traceability program. And they partnered with a, with a company called Oratane. And Oratane works with a wide variety of industries, um, mostly agriculture. But what they are able to do is every time there's a cotton harvest, say in the San Joaquin Valley, where a lot of the Supima cotton is harvested, anytime that's harvested, they go to each farmer and they say, hey, give us some samples of your cotton. And then that cotton goes into a database. It's analyzed for its trace minerals, you know, what environment it was grown in, what the rain, <laughs> rainwater was like, and all that goes into a lab and in, in, into a database. And with that database, now, if you were to test, uh, say, a Supima cotton that you purchased from us at Sun West, or, you know, say, for example, you were buying Supima yarn from a yarn supplier, any step in the supply chain, you can send that to an Oratane lab, and they'll be able to tell you exactly by looking at the trace minerals in that product of, yes, this came from this cotton farm in this cotton harvest season Mm -hmm. and this year and this is true certified supima cotton and there is no other organization on the planet that does that with cotton and i think that's what's so so great about this is it's it's 
taking the guesswork out of this, right? And like I mentioned is, how do we know if this is true Pima cotton or how do we know if this is true Egyptian cotton? Because there's just so much thud going around and people really don't know. And maybe you're buying it from one guy for really cheap and you think you're getting a great deal. Next thing you know, it's not true Pima cotton. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, it's a problem. You know I mean? You have other cotton um, grades, you know, that come out of Egypt. You have Giza 45, which was probably the most renowned one out of, out of Egypt. But um, in and out, it's like Giza 90, I believe is, is, the, the better version of Egyptian they doubled cotton. up yeah exactly um but but again there's really no um verif- verification process and everything mm-hmm. that gets harvested actually throughout the entire united states gets sent to the san joaquin valley and there's a u.s department of agriculture facility there where they take a sample of every bale of cotton that is harvested and they measure and test it and every single time supima beats egyptian it beats peruvian it beats you know Australian pimas. It it is the best cotton that you can find on the planet. And so, mm. what does what does that mean from a standpoint, right? Of, of like upland cottons or whatever. Well, if you were to look at it from like a like a plant level, it's really interesting. If you look at an upland cotton plant, the fibers are really really strong towards the root of the seed. So you have your cotton seeds in the plant, and if you were to try to separate seeds from upland cotton, it would be almost like impossible to get all the seed off, or I mean all the fiber off the seed. Supima is not like that, or any Pima plant in general is not like that. And the strength of the fiber is actually at the tips of the fiber, as opposed to at the root of the fiber, and the seeds fall right off. It's really interesting to see from a one-to-one comparison. So what that means is that that fiber is going to be a little bit, sl- a little bit longer, a little bit silkier, a little bit softer hand. It's going to be easier to twist in a yarn spinning process. You're going to have a le- less piling, less breakage. And it's going to retain a lot more color and it's going to be a lot more vibrant when it does take color. And it's, it's truly interesting to, to, to see the two cottons <laughs> go one-to-one mm-hmm. to each other. And I think a lot of people, you know, when, when it's funny, when you look at raw supima or pima cotton, it's, it's a yellow plant as opposed to like a white cotton plant. And so the, the fibers are generally a little bit more yellow looking, um, but they're so much softer and, uh, I'll have to send you some samples. I have bags of Supima cotton versus regular cotton that I'll send to you and you can see for yourself. It's pretty fun. Oh, please. Yeah. They can understand why they would want to protect it with, uh, it almost sounds like, you know, the ground crew appellation that you would have in like Burgundy protecting wines of like, Oh, how do you know that it actually came from this plot of soil? Right. Uh, and you have to have that regulation because it's, it's a brand name. And if it gets watered down at the, and something with cotton, like even some of the, the best folks, like you have to have something scientific to sort through it or else it could be cut with pretty much anything, like you said. Right. And from a human rights perspective as well, that there are a lot of uh, unsavory production practices that at least I've read about um, in cotton in Central Asia and East Asia. You know, this was a thing that was really big last year with the Xinjiang cotton in uh, northwestern China and the human rights abuses that potentially came along with it. And it being used as a marketing term, so the Supima is uh, separate from all of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Supima is you know only protects farmers in California, um, Arizona, and Texas, which is the three regions that Supima cotton grows. But yeah. I think it brings a lot of clarity to the outlook, mm-hmm. right? Because it's very murky, like you mentioned, and you know no one really knows where this Pima cotton from Peru is coming from, or what it's cut with, or this Egyptian cotton is coming from. Um, the rest of the world benchmarks itself against Supima pretty much. So mm-hmm. it's, it's great to be working with the best 
you know, and from a Sun West perspective, which when you start with the best, you know, it, it really carries all the way through and that, and you feel it in the end product. Um, it's silkier, it's smoother, it lasts a lot longer. You're able to get a lot more washes out of the product. Um, I imagine it demands a higher price as well. Like, could you uh, ballpark what the difference is between using just a standard upland or uh, Egyptian cotton versus something that's made out of Supima? Yeah. So um, it, it is, it is. And that's because obviously it's expensive to do a lot of this lab testing, this licensing, you know, every supplier in the supply chain for Supima needs to be licensed through the Supima organization where you send samples of your product over to them. They verify that it's true Supima cotton. Um, that has an added value cost. I would say, from a price perspective, the cost of a Supima cotton yarn versus an upland cotton yarn, and without going into the nuances of the different mm-hmm. cotton yarns that you could purchase, I would say it's probably about 30 to 40% uh, more expensive than regular upland cotton. Mm-hmm. That's significant. Yeah. Oh, and hence why people, you know, cut corners and don't use it if you don't have a as discerning of a consumer base that wants it. Right, absolutely. And then, I mean, you, that, you know, when you go down the chain, I mean, there's even contaminated yarns, right? And like, if you're buying really, really cheap cotton, you know, probably came from some someplace on the other side of the world, you know, you got polyester that's contaminating it, you know? So, like, you'll find, like, a lot of hand-picked cotton. Well, uh, people can tout it to be really good. They throw them in polyester bags, and those polyester bags get dumped into these yeah, they shed and- gins, and they shed right into it. Next thing you know, you got like a purple or a pink fiber in your shirt. You know, it's like that. You know, what was the point of handpicking all this if you're just going to contaminate everything? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, a lot of this is fairly high level stuff that um, you know it, it's difficult to communicate to a consumer when they're staring at two different t-shirts on a rack. Right. Yeah. What what has been the the communication process and like how do you um you know go about educating people uh, of all these different nuances? Right, and and like I had mentioned, it's an ongoing process that we're continually developing. So, for example, this October we'll be out uh, at uh, the Supima harvest season, and mm-hmm. every, every October is when all the cotton's being harvested, and we have a little brunch, and you know, we have champagne, and we celebrate the cotton harvest of the season, and we have. We have a good time together, you know, we get to tour the farms, meet the families, you know, Jay Kaza is one of our farmers out there and he's a phenomenal guy. He's young, he's about 33, fourth generation farmer, he's inherited the farm from his family and he has this out there and it's cool to see his wife, his kids running around and uh, my plan is to really kind of sit down one-on-one time with him, you know, really hear Mm -hmm. his side of the story. You know, and not, not just in the farming aspects too, but sitting down with Jose, our knitter, right? Hearing his story, sitting down with our sewing facility and their story. Every, every everyone has a story in how they got into this business and, and and how it's unfolding, right? And I think that is truly going to speak volumes to a lot of consumers. And I, like like you mentioned, there's a lot of people saying that they're transparent and everything, but there's not really people walking that walk, right? And so mm-hmm. I, um. It's going to take time. Obviously, there's so much ground to cover, you know, outside of the operational aspect of actually making the T-shirt. You got to got to get out to these farms. You got to get footage. You got to mic everyone up. You got to get to organize a lot of this stuff. But I think in due time, you know, people are going to see that. And, and it reflects in the quality of the product. It, I, 
I think as you alluded to, the hardest part is telling people about it. Once they receive the t-shirt, they're just mind blown at how soft it is. You know, mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I see someone get one t-shirt next to another ordering like 20, you know, of different colors, mm-hmm. different, different sizes, you know, and it's, uh, it, it's, it, and it's, it's fulfilling, but at the same time, you know, it's like, you know, yeah, I kind of expected this, right? When you start with the best fibers and you work with the best facilities, you're going to have the best t-shirt that like people haven't ever felt before, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, I think the transparency aspect, right. is like something that we need to do our best in, in following up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there any that communicated like on the label? I, I guess it's less yeah. necessary because, uh, everything is, is direct to consumer. Right. So any consumer is going to have to go through the website and, you know, uh, get a lot more information there than anything you could print onto a t-shirt. Sure. Um, yeah. And this is actually something we discussed internally at Sun West and something that we're actively working on. And so um, obviously on, on the label right now, you'll see that it's, you know, 50% Supima cotton, which legally you cannot put Supima cotton without being a licensed Supima partner and as well as uh, Lensing's Micromodel. And, mm-hmm. and Lensing's another great, phenomenal company out of Austria. Um, yeah. that's, that's immediately on the care label right there. Uh, Another thing that we want to incorporate is start attaching QR codes to our care labels. And so you can scan that QR code and that'll take you to our webpage that can give you that story or that can educate people on where this is coming from, what our process was like. Um, it's, it's about making the presentation of the product look good in the same time, but also being environmentally conscious. You know, you don't want to be adding all these different hang tags and everything like that. You want to, you want it to be as sustainable from a full cycle perspective. And so mm-hmm. I think that the QR code um, is something that we're working for our next run of a production right now. And I'm really excited about that. And another thing we've actually been looking into is NFC tags too, that are going to be sewn into the t-shirt as well to allow people to scan. And uh, you mentioned Micromodel and uh, our friends over at Lensing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what's the the motivation between you, you're using fifty percent Supima and fifty percent like a uh, Micromodel, like a ten cell like wood fabric yep. or uh, fiber? Yeah, beechwood trees that are washed along the shoreline and harvested. So um, if if there was that perfect fiber that did everything on the planet, everyone would be mm-hmm. using it. That's that's yeah. what I tell everyone. Everyone would be using that fiber if there was that perfect fiber on the planet. Unfortunately, there isn't. Uh, but you can combine the best of both worlds um, from using a multitude of different fibers. And so, mm-hmm. to touch on what Micromodel is, Micromodel is is Lensing's patented chemical process of regenerated cellulose. And cellulose fibers are you know your cottons, your, your flaxes, uh, you know any anything organic pretty much except for the carotene, which is like wools and stuff. And we can talk about that later, but from uh, like an organic matter perspective, it is chemically broken down in a very efficient process. And lensing is probably, I would say the prime example of what every environmentally conscious company on the planet should strive to be. They are just so great with their transparency. They're so great about their processes and how they harvest their materials. And they, re- they really lead the world. And Micromodel, as a regenerated cellulose, is very similar to like rayon. And rayon was developed many, many, many years ago. And that was man's answer to silk. Because silk, mm-hmm. silk was really incredibly hard to harvest. Um, you know, there was, it was expensive. But, um, you know, 
men wanted to create a fiber that was drapey, that had silky smoothness to it. And that's how you develop rayon. And, and Micromodel is just their patented version of it, essentially, using their technology mm-hmm. and using beech trees that are harvested. And uh, so combining that silkiness and that softiness and that drape, drapiness with cotton, which is kind of like organic and it brings that bulk and that warmth, you kind of get the best of both worlds, right? And you, you'll see Micromodel using a lot of underwear applications too. Um, so now imagine that on your chest or your back or your arm, right? And there's other other like secret things that I throw in there um, later on in the manufacturing process that make it really incredibly soft. But um, starting with those In two, the finishing process? In the finishing, yeah. I, I, I've worked with these dye houses extensively in developing something that works really well with these t-shirts. Mm. Cool. So now that we've talked about, I guess, pretty much everything that's, that goes into the uh, Sewn West t-shirt, uh, mm. could you talk a little bit about the design of the shirt itself mm. and the, yep. the shape and the details and uh, what it means to uh, for you to finally make something that has no compromises in it? Right. Well, you know, I think it's really funny, funny with the way that trends have kind of moved. It's, I think as people start to work from home more, um, tech companies and startups have kind of normalize the idea that t-shirt and jeans and a blazer are are okay to wear in, in, at, at the office and so less and less people are buying button-ups and, and moving more sort of casual wear because they're comfortable and uh, i had a friend tell me this when she said your t-shirts are for the t-shirt executive you know so someone mm-hmm. who <laughs> someone who really enjoys what they wear and is okay throwing a blazer on going to the office it's maybe like a director creative director or something like that um but to get into the design aspects of it, you know, it, we wanted to start off with a core core offering, you know, starting with different hemlines that are on trend. You know, we have our scoop hem, we have our split hem, and we have our basic crew, and then using different necklines. So we have our crew neck, our V-neck, and for our, our fall production run, we are currently working on expanding that color uh, assortment now into more on-trend colors now that we've tackled a couple of the core colors. and. So we're going to really start getting into some of the fun stuff, you know, like the burgundies, the olives, the, like deep green olives, the the browns, the the hummus, you know, really kind of have fun with it. And then from there, really expand that product line, you know, using really good uh, quality fibers, such as Supima, and as well as Micromodel, you know, maybe it's an underwear, maybe it's, you know, French Terry uh, sweats or a hoodie. Um, there's the possibilities are endless and, and as, as well as the fibers, you know, we're not, we're not married to the idea of Supima and, and Micromodel. It's really all dependent on the application, right? There's so many great mm-hmm. fibers out there. There's so many great And rules. what's best for each individual right. use case. Yeah. You know, like a, like a beanie, you know, you could definitely do a cashmere blended with a Supima cotton. It'd be phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Cool. And the, the price point, not ridiculous from uh, I guess anyone that's, uh, listen this far and think like, oh, like everything that's gone into this, this t-shirt must cost like a hundred dollars, but they're 35. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I mentioned, you know, we're, we're able to be competitive because we can control pretty much every aspect of the supply chain. You know, obviously everything is contracted out with people who specialize in what they do. Right. But, uh, because we have the added benefit of knowing how to do all of it, we're really not getting, you know, a, a bad end of the bargain by having to go through someone else to do it, to do it for us. Right. And so, because we work directly with our, our vendor partners. 
Uh, well, the, the Summon line, West line is available now. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to get into? Uh, yeah. Like we covered quite a, a yeah. broad <laughs> swath of the yeah. cotton and t-shirt production. No, I, I appreciate you having me on. You know, I, I, I firmly believe in doing these kind of things, really educating people on on why this stuff's so important, you know, and, and it does matter. And, and, and anyone who, who tries on a Sun West tee will see that um, when when they feel it. And so I'm really excited, you know, and um, yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Well, thanks for coming on. So for uh, our listeners, we've got 15% off with the promo code SWHEDELS15, S-W-H-E-D-D-E-L-S-15, which is valid uh, through the end of the month, through June 30th. Um, and your website is uh, www.sewnwest.com, S-E-W-N-W-E-S-T.com. And uh, social handles are the same as sewn like underscore West. Correct. Sort of like what we have at Heddles that uh, Heddles underscore because some women in Germany won't give up the, uh, the Heddles uh, (laughs) Instagram handle, but that's fine. She keeps posting pictures of strudel. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Thanks so much for coming on Blake. Uh, Appreciate it. Yep. Thank you so much.